0: Welcome to the August 27, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that identifies a new modular organization of erythropoiesis and offers a novel strategy to overcome chronic anemias, Summarize a study that used data from two large phase 3 trials to examine the risk of thrombosis in patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, and review the first report of autosomal recessive germline TET2 deficiency, which results in immunodeficiency, autoimmune lymphoproliferation, and lymphoma. Our first topic is a study entitled, Megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 Partitions Erythropoiesis into Immature Progenitor Stem Cells and Maturing Precursors, conducted by Silvana Di Giandomenico and colleagues at Weill Cornell Medicine. In this study, the authors identified a new modular organization of erythropoiesis that involves an unsuspected physiological role for megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 as a gatekeeper, that regulates the feed of committed erythroid progenitors to a maturation model regulated by erythropoietin. It is estimated that a third of the world population suffers from anemia. Since daily production of greater than 200 billion erythrocytes is required to keep up the routine losses, even a minor disequilibrium between blood loss and erythrocyte production can lead to anemia. Although many transient anemias are easily treated, therapies for chronic anemia are limited. Red cell transfusions and erythropoiesis-stimulating agents are not always effective and are linked to significant expense, inconvenience, and potential toxicity. Despite these treatment limitations, the development of new approaches to treat chronic anemias have been limited due to an incomplete understanding of erythropoiesis. While erythropoietin, or EPO, is important for supporting early erythroid precursors as they gear up for iron accumulation, heme synthesis, and globin gene transcription, this in fact represents a very narrow window of erythropoiesis, taking place weeks after progenitors commit to becoming a red blood cell. This could perhaps explain why many cases of anemia are unresponsive to just exogenous EPO. Shedding new light on these events... Di Gian Domenico and fellow researchers identified a new modular organization of erythropoiesis. They showed for the first time that availability of EPO-insensitive hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells is coupled to the later phase of EPO-dependent red cell maturation by megakaryocyte signals. These signals involve TGF-beta-1, the major member of a cytokine superfamily that regulates cell survival, proliferation, and differentiation via SMAD transcription factors. Megakaryocytes are the main cellular source of TGF-beta-1 in the bone marrow. Prior studies have already shown that megakaryocyte-derived TGF-beta-1 regulates hematopoietic stem cell quiescence. Disrupting megakaryocyte TGF-beta1 in mice using a targeted knockout strategy resulted in disorganized hematopoiesis by expanding the pre-epo pool of erythroid progenitors and erythroblasts. Epo-dependent precursors underwent apoptosis and no excess of red blood cells or other blood cells was observed. Giving a TGF-beta1 blocking antibody had similar results. In both cases, subsequent treatment with low doses of EPO rescued apoptosis and triggered robust red blood cell production. Thus, this study revealed that megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 couples the number of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells to the need for erythrocytes. A key point is that interfering with the megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 axis sensitizes erythropoiesis to low-dose EPO and increases red blood cell output. The authors suggest that expanding the progenitor pool by blocking homeostatic levels of megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 could be a new strategy for overcoming chronic anemias. In an accompanying commentary on the study, Villeval and Vincenker from the Université Paris-Saclay note that this interesting study raises multiple unanswered questions that will stimulate further investigation. First, what regulates megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1 secretion? This protein is stored in their alpha granules and its homeostatic secretion could result from either leaky storage or continuous alpha granule content release. It is also unknown whether this process is cell autonomous or regulated by external sensors yet to be discovered. Second, TGF-beta-1 is secreted as part of a complex bound to the extracellular matrix that needs to be cleaved to release its active form. This activation process is not fully understood. Third, since the production of platelets and red blood cells share a common bipotent progenitor, it would be interesting to study megakaryocyte and platelet production in mice deficient in megakaryocyte TGF-beta-1. In conclusion, this study provides new insights on the role of TGF-beta-1 in normal hematopoiesis and underscores TGF-beta-1 signaling pathways as an important therapeutic target to correct anemia and other cytopenias, as already shown for myelodysplastic syndromes. We will next summarize results of secondary analysis of thrombotic events from two large Phase 3 trials for patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma where patients were treated before and after publication of thrombosis prevention guidelines. This report is titled, Thrombosis in Patients with Myeloma Treated in the Myeloma 9 and Myeloma 11 Phase III Randomized Controlled Trials from Charlotte Bradbury of University of Bristol in the UK and colleagues of the United Kingdom Medical Research Council, or MRC. The pathogenesis of venous thrombosis, or VTE, in myeloma is complex and only partially understood. The introduction of immunomodulatory drugs, referred to as IMIDS, has improved myeloma treatment, but these agents further increase the risk of VTE. However, Incidence data from large prospective cohorts are lacking, and it is also unknown whether thalidomide or lenalidomide, the two most commonly used IMIDs to induction therapy, have the same thrombotic risk. Thus, The authors reviewed retrospective data from the MRC Myeloma 9 trial that included a total of 1,936 participants, and the National Cancer Research Institute Myeloma 11 trial that included 4,358 participants. These are the largest randomized trials using IMID and corticosteroid regimens for newly diagnosed myeloma patients published to date. Myeloma-9 recruited patients before thrombosis prevention guidance from the International Myeloma Working Group, which was published in 2008, and myeloma-11 patients were recruited afterward. Both trials confirm and highlight the significant thrombosis risk for these patients, with nearly all events occurring within six months of starting myeloma treatment regardless of treatment regimen. For example... VTE were as high as 22% in the transplant-eligible myeloma-9 patients that received a regimen without an IMID. For transplant-ineligible patients, a regimen including thalidomide and dexamethasone for induction had a 16% risk of VTE, and the risk was 4.1% for those treated only with melphalan and prednisone. In myeloma-11, the overall incidence of thrombosis was reduced compared to myeloma-9 there was no difference in VTE or arterial thrombosis risk between transplant-eligible pathways, which used either a lenalidomide or thalidomide-based regimen. The VTE incidence was 12 to 13% and arterial events around 1.5%. Transplant-ineligible patients treated with either lenalidomide or thalidomide-based regimens also had no difference in VTE incidence, which was around 10.5%. Of note thrombosis was generally not associated with inferior progression-free or overall survival. In both trials, patterns of thromboprophylaxis prior to VTE events surprisingly did not significantly differ between treatment groups and for high- and low-risk patients. This suggests that additional factors are considered when making thromboprophylaxis decisions, including patient and clinical choice, logistical difficulties with daily injections of low molecular weight heparin, and bleeding risk. Overall, the results show that the incidence of VTE was modestly reduced in the myeloma 11 trial. A second key point is that VTE risk is equivalent for thalidomide and lenalidomide regimens. Importantly, Bradbury and colleagues noted that patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma remain at unacceptably high levels of VTE risk despite implementation of thromboprophylaxis. Therefore, new approaches are needed, particularly in the initial six months of treatment. In an accompanying commentary on the study, Samuel Rubenstein from Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville and Sasha Tuckman from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill Note that while these results are illuminating, the generalizability is somewhat limited due to the obsolescence of the regimens tested, including the use of high-dose dexamethasone. Nevertheless, several important points emerge. First, the study confirmed that clots are common in multiple myeloma. The high incidence rate of thrombosis in these patients is far higher than in the general population and endorses other studies showing the same. Second. The data also suggest that prompting clinicians to consider thromboprophylaxis by the introduction of guidelines reduces clots. Lastly, this study adds the largest body of prospective evidence that lenalidomide and thalidomide confer similar thrombotic risk, corroborating existing retrospective data. Two take-home messages for clinicians that care for multiple myeloma patients are that consistent implementation of thromboprophylaxis is vital and that we need to vastly improve efforts to mitigate thrombosis in these patients. Our final topic today is a report of three children who had biallelic loss-of-function TET2 mutations conducted by Spegarova, Lawless, and colleagues, led by Hamilton and Savick at the Newcastle University Translational and Clinical Research Institute and the Leeds Institute of Medical Research, both in the UK. The study, entitled Germline TET2 Loss of Function Causes Childhood Immunodeficiency and Lymphoma, identified rare homozygous germline missense or nonsense variants in a known epigenetic regulator of gene expression, 1011-translocation-methylcytosine-dioxygenase-2, commonly referred to as TET2. Inborn errors of immunity are rare inherited diseases caused by genetic defects leading to functional abnormalities in the immune system, which range from susceptibility to infection to immune dysregulation. Predisposition to blood cancers is also a relatively frequent manifestation, in many cases directly attributable to the effect of the disease-causing mutation on lymphocyte behavior. TET2 is one of three members of a family of epigenetic regulators that convert 5-methylcytosine to 5-hydroxymethylcytosine and further oxidation products in a pathway of active DNA methylation. TETs also interact with histone-modifying enzymes and transcription factors to exert additional epigenetic effects. Thus, TET2 actively shapes the local chromatin environment. TET2 is ubiquitous, but is highly expressed in hematopoietic cells and plays important roles in hematopoiesis. Consistent with a tumor suppressor role, somatic loss of function TET2 mutations were first reported in patients with myeloproliferative disorders and hematologic cancers more than 10 years ago, and more recently, in clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. In addition, inherited heterozygous deficiency of TET2 was reported in a family with lymphoma and in another family with myeloid malignancies. However, the study by Spegarova, Lawless, and colleagues is the first report of human germline homozygous TET2 loss-of-function mutations. The authors studied three children from two unrelated consanguineous families who had an autosomal recessive immunodysregulatory syndrome with susceptibility to infection, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, autoimmunity, and lymphoma of either B-cell or T-cell origin. Infections included recurrent viral respiratory tract infections and persistent EBV viremia. Non-hematopoietic clinical features that included developmental delay and hypothyroidism were also present. In addition, all three children showed early autologous T-cell reconstitution following allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation associated with mixed chimerism or disappearance of donor cells. Given the striking combination of immunodeficiency, lymphoma, and developmental delay in the setting of consanguinity, an autosomal recessive inborn error was expected. Whole exome sequencing identified rare, homozygous germline variants in TET2. One affected kindred had a highly damaging missense mutation, and the other kindred bore a nonsense variant. Mutated TET2 protein was either absent or enzymatically defective for 5-hydroxymethylating activities, resulting in whole-blood DNA hypermethylation. Circulating T-cells showed an abnormal immunophenotype, including expanded double-negative but depleted follicular helper T-cell compartments. T lymphoblasts showed impaired, fast-dependent apoptosis and other features reminiscent of autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome in the two patients harboring the missense TET2 mutation. TET2-deficient B cells showed defective class switch recombination. Also of note was that the hematopoietic potential of patient-derived induced pluripotent stem cells was skewed toward the myeloid lineage. Thus, the finding of autosomal recessive germline deficiency of TET2 in three children who had immunodeficiency, autoimmunity, and lymphoproliferation highlighted the broad roles of TET2 in the human immune system. In an accompanying commentary titled Human TET2 Bridges Cancer and Immunity, Qian Zhang of Rockefeller University in New York and Jean Laurent Casanova of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute Note that this study neatly illustrates the rapid growth of the field of inborn errors of immunity in many unexpected directions. It also highlights the unpredictable impact of mutations of housekeeping or highly specialized genes that can result in surprisingly narrow and sometimes unique phenotypes that could not be predicted from mouse models or biochemical studies. For example, the preservation of most hematopoietic lineages in the patients, despite the profound increase in DNA methylation in the blood, is surprising. Zhang and Casanova suggest that more detailed studies of TET2 mutant cells will reveal insights into methylation-dependent gene regulation and its influence on hemopoietic lineages. Additional studies could also help with differentiating the function and targets of TET-2 from those of TET-1 and TET-3. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.